Good morning, church. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the deacons here at Church of the Valley, and I'm excited to share God's Word with us this morning. This morning, I hope to paint a picture of God's love as we celebrate the first Advent, or coming of Christ, and hopefully point us toward the second Advent as well. I think it's important before we continue to remember that the whole of Scripture is one story of God's plan for redemption. When we read it and understand it this way, we can better identify who this story is all about, Jesus. When we understand the entire story is about Jesus and what He has done, we're not making it all about us and what we must do. I hope this will become more evident as we go on this morning. Now, in order to tackle the text that I've chosen, I'd like to start with a long prologue of sorts that I hope will set up this morning's message. So please hang with me for a while. We'll get to our application points in a little bit, but for now, I'd like to walk through a story from the Old Testament. This story is likely familiar to you, both because you have probably heard it before and also because I think it is often played out in each of our own lives. So keep your place in your Bible in the Gospel of John. We'll return back to there while we first spend some time in the book of Exodus. We're going to fly through all these passages. So if you are one who likes to look through uh, the text, we'll have it on the screen. Um, but just hang on. So when we look back at the book of Exodus, we find God leading the Israelites through the desert by way of his servant Moses. The Israelites had endured 400 years of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, and God miraculously rescues them and tells them that he will lead them to a promised land. And yet, we find the Israelites on a roller coaster of emotions and reactions. Now, upon delivering them from slavery, God tells the Israelites exactly what is about to happen to them. He spells it out pretty clearly. He tells them to camp by the sea and says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue you and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. And the Bible says, and they did so. So the Israelites say, we trust you, God, and we will do what you say. Now, everything God said would happen, happens exactly the way he said it. The Israelites camp at the Red Sea, and almost immediately, upon seeing the coming army, they begin to complain that they would have been better off living as slaves in Egypt than die in battle. Now, Moses calms the people, and he says, fear not, the Lord will fight for you. And listen to this, you have only to be silent. And he raises his arms just as God commands, and the Red Sea parts the people walk through safely, and Pharaoh's army is completely destroyed. Now the Bible says, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Now later, they're trudging through the desert, and they grumble that at least in Egypt, they had food to eat. So God tells Moses, and Moses tells the people that God will provide them bread every morning and meat every evening, but that they're only to take what they could eat that day. 
and it would only be for six days. For on the seventh day they would rest and only eat what they had collected the previous day. And God says, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And the Bible goes on to say, and the people of Israel did so. Except that they didn't. And the Bible says again, but they did not listen to Moses. Now they either gathered too much food and attempted to save it for the next day, and it spoiled, or they woke up on the seventh day, their Sabbath, and they wondered why breakfast wasn't ready. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and laws? Now, I can keep going. The Israelites are thirsty, and they complain about having no water to drink. They accuse Moses of bringing them out of Egypt only to kill them and their children of thirst, and they demand that he give them water. So Moses intercedes on their behalf. He strikes a rock as God commands him, and miracle water pours out, and the people have water to drink. And the Bible says, and Moses called the name of the place Massa and Moriah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? It's a bold statement. It's not a great track record for the Israelites. Now this brings us to Moses and the Israelites encamped at Sinai. We read in Exodus 19. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, And listen carefully to their response. Again, they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. If we skip ahead for a moment to Exodus 29, verse 45, God says to the people, or to Moses, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The same God who performed miracles through Moses before the Pharaoh, the same God that parted the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army right before them, the same God who led them through the desert with a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. This God declares that he will be their God. 
So God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and a whole list of other laws at the top of Mount Sinai. The laws given to Moses are the terms of the agreement for the covenant that God makes with him. The law is, as Tim Keller once said, a list of the things that God really loves and a list of the things that he really hates. God promises that if they obey his laws, if they do the things that he loves, and if they don't do the things that he hates, that they would be set apart as his people. He will be their God, and he will dwell with them. Now, it's important to note here that this law that God gives them is not a means for their salvation. They're still called to make sacrifices at this time. Instead, it serves to distinguish the Israelites as God's chosen people. They are different than all the other nations that they would encounter in the promised land. Now, in Exodus 24, we read, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, again, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God has told the Israelites over and over, this is who I am, and this is what I will do for you, and this is how you should respond. Then God commands Moses to return to the mountain where he will receive the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which he has written for their instruction. In Exodus 24, we read, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. If we skip down to Exodus 32, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now let that sink in for a moment. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. First, we've just listened to a whole myriad of ways that God himself rescued and provided for them. He led them all of which the people had acknowledged. Second, as we read earlier, Moses had already given them the very rules which they are breaking. 
Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or any th- of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The ink on the contract isn't even dry yet. The tablets have not yet been carved. I know I said earlier that we should always look to Jesus as the hero in the text that we read, but if we were to ever look for ourselves in the Bible, this is a pretty good starting point. The Israelites repeatedly fail to measure up to the commands that God has given them. He has entered into a covenant with them, but they consistently fail to uphold their end of the deal. God's chosen people aren't acting any different than any other people at this moment. Now let's continue reading in Exodus 32 for God's response. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses intercedes on the people's behalf, reminding God of the previous covenants he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And thankfully, God relents, but not completely. We read in Exodus 33, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I 
will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God will uphold his promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. He will deliver the promised land to them, and he will give them wealth and prosperity and success in battle against their enemies. But he will not give them his presence. He will not dwell with them. Now, why is this? God calls the Israelites a stiff-necked people. That's not a term that we commonly use now. So what does that mean? It means that they're stubborn. They're difficult to lead. The phrase calls to mind a farm animal stiffening its neck to refuse the yoke. Now, God has demonstrated over and over his faithfulness and his love to lead his people, his ability to rescue, to care for them. But his people have consistently doubted him. They've resisted him. They've refused to uphold their end of the covenant. So God will not give them his presence. Now Moses recognizes what this means. He has witnessed all that God has done to deliver them, to provide for them. And yet he understands that it is all meaningless without the presence of God. Without God's presence, the Israelites would be indistinguishable from all other people. Lots of people have wealth. Lots of people have success. But not everyone dwells with God. God has agreed to spare the Israelites, but the question of the broken covenant remains. So Moses goes up about setting a tent as a temporary tabernacle where he can meet with God. And in this tent, Moses intercedes on the people's behalf yet again in Exodus 33. We read, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And I know it's getting pretty heavy at this point, but it's, the good news is coming. Okay? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor and might, and I know you by name. And God still loves his chosen people, despite their disobedience. And he grants Moses a second intercession. But this introduces for us a very important question. How do you solve the problem of a holy God who cannot dwell in the presence of sin, but whose chosen people also happen to be habitual sinners? Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. Moses has made several requests of God at this point, all of which God has granted. But this is his most daring request yet. Tim Keller, in his sermon on this text, calls this prayer one of the most astonishing prayers in all of the Bible. 
Moses asked God, please show me your glory. Moses wonders after rightfully recognizing the significance, the importance of God's presence, what would it mean to see all of God's glory? What would it be like to see God for who he really is? And God answers no. Why? Why can't Moses see God's glory? God says, I can't show you my full glory or you might die. He says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But this is what I can do. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, this opening in the mountain. And I will make all my goodness, not glory, but goodness, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses is unable to see the face of God. But God will protect Moses enough to permit him to see the back parts of his goodness. We read in Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now pay attention here to what is one of the clearest definitions that God gives of himself. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God tells Moses that he will show him his goodness. And Moses sees just a part of God's nature. He sees just a part of who God is. God's goodness or his glory is his infinite love and his infinite justice. Tim Keller states that God's goodness is the answer to the question, how can God be infinitely just and punish all sin and still be infinitely loving and forgive and pardon sin? So that finally brings us to our text this morning in John, chapter 1, starting with verse 14. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And the Word, Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the word dwelt here means tabernacled or tented. It's literally a direct reference to God's presence in the tent that Moses sets up in the wilderness. Where before God could only meet with Moses and the chosen priests within the innermost parts of the tabernacle at only select times. Now John writes in his gospel that God's glory is made visible to all in the very physical presence and the body of Jesus Christ. Later on, at the very moment of Christ's death, in quite the dramatic and metaphorical flourish, the literal temple veil, which limited access to God previously, is torn in two, symbolizing our ability to enter God's presence freely. It says, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, God's glory is both infinitely loving and infinitely just. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The fullest expression of God's glory is Jesus Christ. Moses interceded on Israel's behalf, but he was an imperfect mediator. Jesus, as God, having become flesh or fully human, was the perfect mediator as he was able to live righteously and fulfill the law found in the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant was perfect, but the problem was the people were not. The law could not save them. Moses' intercession repeatedly could not save them. But in Christ and the new covenant, God says, I will love you. I will show you mercy. I will take on the punishment for sin myself. In Christ's life, we see God's mercy and love on vivid display in the way he heals the sick, in the way he welcomes the outcast, in the way he comforts the poor. And in his death and resurrection, we see God's justice. Jesus himself takes the punishment for our own sins, and he paid the debt he did not owe. God's glory is his goodness. And his goodness is demonstrated in his willingness to fulfill the covenant himself. He is our God, and we are his people, not because of anything we do, but because he alone satisfies the requirements of the covenant. So in light of this truth, what should be our response this morning? First, the love of God, displayed in God's glory and goodness, should spur us ourselves to love 
both God for what he's done and others. And it should compel us to share the gospel. When Moses saw just a glimpse of God's goodness, the Bible says he bowed his head and worshiped. He didn't even fully understand what he had just witnessed, but he was profoundly changed by the experience. We should first preach the gospel to ourselves through prayer and his word, remembering the grace by which we are saved. It should change how we view God and how we view ourselves. It is easy to fall into the practice of trying to do everything right so that God will love us. But Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We should also preach the gospel to others, both within and outside the church. God has determined that we, as followers of Christ, should reflect his glory. Just as the Israelites were set apart from the other nations by their adherence to the law, we are to be set apart by our complete and total dependence on God's grace. And how do we reflect his glory? How do we reflect his goodness? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. In other words, as we become more like Christ, we should reflect him in all that we do, thereby pointing others back to God. We imitate Christ. We do what he did. We love like he loved. And we boast about what he has done. We don't point to ourselves and our own glory. We declare what God has done to our, in our lives to others. And second, the love of God should compel us to anticipate his second coming and to trust him in the meantime. During the season of Advent, we pause to remember Christ's first coming, but we also look forward to when he will come again. We live in the tension of the already and not yet kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here, established with Christ's death and resurrection, but it is not yet fully realized. And I think we all know that this is not the way it was meant to be. I know some people in this room have experienced great pain and loss this past year. I know it can seem, depending on your circumstances, that what you're going through is just too much. You may look around like the Israelites and wonder, where is God? But just like the Israelites in the wilderness, we can trust that God is a good father who promises to care for us, to comfort us, to deliver us. In a world of sin and suffering, we have hope for the future because of what Christ has already done on the cross. 
We have in Jesus someone who can relate to our suffering in every way. And we long for when all will be made right again, but we trust him with our suffering in the meantime. Now, our family has enjoyed reading the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a sort of Christian allegory featuring Aslan the lion and the Pevensey children and all manners of fantastical creatures. In a letter he wrote to a curious child, Lewis said his intention when writing the Chronicles of Narnia was to write a children's story about Christ. And with that in mind, Lewis concludes the final book of the series with this passage. And it's a passage I want to read to you. I believe it beautifully imagines the second advent. I believe it voices a longing that we all have a longing so much so that my oldest son will regularly open up the book just to turn to this final page to read this. And as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now, as great a writer as C.S. Lewis is, and I would encourage you to read that if you haven't, the real thing is even better. John, having been shown Christ's second coming in a dream, writes the following in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he goes on to write in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And check this out. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the promised land. This is what we, as followers of Christ, have to look forward to. The second advent, the second coming of Christ. Both in this particular season of Christmas and through our, our very waking moment, this should be our greatest anticipation. Moses saw but a hint of God's glory. And we see God now in a mirror dimly, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. But someday, someday we will finally see him in the full brilliance of his glory. And this is his love. We will see the face of God, and his name will be on our foreheads, meaning everyone will know that he is our God and we are his people. This is what we should all long for. This is what we should hope for. As we enter a time of response, I invite the band and the prayer team to come forward. For both the believer and the unbeliever, I pray that the gospel of this great message is made perfectly clear here this morning. God loves you, and Jesus has mercifully paid the price for your sin. There's nothing for you to do but accept his grace. Nothing. Just as the Israelites repeatedly and consistently failed to live up to God's moral standard, there is nothing that you can do that will ever be good enough. Nothing. You can't do it because God has already done it all. So stop striving. Stop trying to earn his love. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We may be a stiff-necked people, but our God is a loving Father. If you are weary this morning, come. I would love to introduce you to a loving Father who says, I love you, and I want to dwell with you forever. Our prayer team and our pastors are available to pray here this morning with you. I invite you now to respond. Let's pray. Father God, in this time of Advent, we thank you for the coming of your Son, Christ.
who did what none of us could do. Where we sin, he lived a righteous life. He showed us how to love and what it was to love you and the people that you love. And in obedience, he went to the cross for our sin. And praise Jesus, he raised in three days so that we could have eternal life. I pray this morning, again, for the believer and the non-believer, that we would remember the gospel daily of what it was that you did. It's such a picture of your love for us this morning. That we don't have anything to offer, and that is a good thing. Because you have offered it all for us. All the way back to Abraham, that you completed the covenant yourself. So I do pray that we would stop striving, that we would just rest in your perfect grace. That this morning we would see in perfect clarity how much you love us, that you loved us so much, that this was your redemption plan. This was your great rescue plan for all of history to reconcile your people back to you. Father, I pray for those who do not know you yet, that you would work in their hearts, that the Holy Spirit, that it is all the Holy Spirit, would just compel them to see your great love here this morning and respond. And I pray that during these times of uh, just trouble and difficulty and, you know, it seems that we don't always know where to turn, that our first look would be to you and to your face. And we'd look and long for the time in which one day all will be made right and we will truly see the face of God. In Jesus' name, amen.